Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Pushkin. Buffy St. Marie was never a household name in the U.S. But if you ask her peers, she probably should have been. She was a pioneering artist in the Greenwich Village folk scene, playing alongside people like Bob Dylan. She even helped give Joni Mitchell her start. But in the early days of Vietnam, when Buffy was singing protest songs about the casualties of war, she was blacklisted by the U.S. government. Her music was barely played on radio, but she still found an audience. Her classic songs, like Universal Soldier, have been covered by Elvis Presley, Barbra Streisand, Courtney Love, Morrissey, and she was the first Native woman to win an Academy Award though she's probably best remembered by Americans for her controversial stint on Sesame Street, where she taught the cast about her indigenous heritage and Big Bird about breastfeeding. Today, at 79 years old, Buffy's still active. She had a robust touring schedule until, of course, this year. Now she's just at home in Hawaii, where she met up with Rick Rubin. They talk about her blacklisting and why she wrote a song about coding long before any Southern rapper ever did. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Rick Rubin and Buffy St. Marie. I want to start by talking about what the world was like when you started making music. What was the original motivation? What made you start doing this? What was the culture like? I, I had no choice. I was living in an adoptive family in Maine and Massachusetts. You were born in Canada, yes? Maybe. I think I was, but I was adopted, so you you, don't really know. So you don't don't think of yourself as Canadian? 
I think of myself as as indigenous North American and okay. and indigenous people in North America. We predate those borders. Those Understood. borders haven't been around very long. Understood. And although most Americans would not know, probably a lot of Canadians would know about the Jay Treaty, for instance, which means that, you know, we can just go back and forth that we don't need no passport. Um, but most of the guys at the border don't know that. So as 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 an indigenous person in the Americas, you not only have the world be the way that it is, which is tough for everybody, but also you get another little set of challenges in that most of the other people don't know about you, you yourself. You're such a small minority. I mean, there are so few people of Native American background in show business. I mean, there's, you know, like Burt Reynolds was, oh, yeah, I'm one-eighth Cherokee, and my, you know, some other celebrities, yeah, my grandmother was a Cherokee princess, blah, blah. But when it comes to real Native American people who have no choice, and just there's no alternative to being <laughs> an Indian, <laughs> however you call us. And by the way, we all say Indian, <laughs> Native American, Indigenous. We kind of, most of us use it interchangeably. How old were you when you were adopted? A baby. They don't tell you. Okay. Yeah, adoptive children have a lot of problems that most people have never thought about. You don't get a horoscope. <laughs> you don't know when you were born. You don't know where you were born. Mm. You have a birthday assigned by the court. So you never really know who you are, yeah. you know, in the cases of most marginalized, you know, kids come from a marginalized community. You don't really know. So I was about three <laughs> and, and uh, my family got a piano, an upright piano. So that became like my toy. That's what I did instead of sports and Barbie dolls and things. And, and what was the music going on at that time? Like, what were you hearing? <laughs> well, anything that my parents would have on the radio or records that they had, or had around. Mm. So somewhere along the line, I discovered Tchaikovsky. <laughs> and I loved that. I used to listen to Swan Lake and Nutcracker Suite and this thing called In a Persian Market and whatever would come on the radio. And I just taught myself how to play, and just because it was so much fun. And <clears throat> I never could le learn how to read music. So it's taken me all these years, and just a few years ago, I found out I'm actually dyslexic in music, which I had never heard of. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a lot of, there are a lot of people who come at music not through the, the path of um, music teachers. Yeah. Yeah. What's the first time you ever played in front of people? In the summertime, um, I used to go over to a state park and I used to sit around a campfire with everybody else and, and play songs that I'd written and, and you know, Everly Brothers hits and, you know, Fats Domino. Or, this was in the 50s. Mm -hmm. So you asked about, you know, what kind of music influenced me. It, it, that's what it was. Um, I, I heard classics as a child or whatever happened to be on the radio, which mm -hmm. was, you know, kind of Frank Sinatra era. Mm -hmm. um, and then... When I really fell in love with music was when I was about, I must have been 11 or 12 or 13, and I used to go down in the basement, and I was supposed to be ironing my school clothes, but <laughs> I, discovered, um, I discovered rockabilly music on the radio. So Carl Perkins, um, Scotty Moore, yeah. oh, they were just my heroes. And I was also lucky enough, I... Um, I was living in Maine and Massachusetts, and I used to get on a train and um, go to New York. I had a friend that I had met in Maine at a state park, and he would he invited me to his house, and um, you know, all our mothers in agreement. It was those days, 
And we used to go to the Alan Freed Rock and Roll shows. And then the Alan Freed Rock and Roll show started coming to Boston as well. So I went there. So I used to see people like Joanne Campbell. Nobody's ever heard of Joanne Campbell. Oh, shame on you. Oh, man, she was hot. I mean, uh, she was, she and, um, the Platters, I think, were the only women, you know, the Platters, there was one woman. Oh, and Laverne Baker. They were the only women. Um, but <laughs> uh, it was Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, um, and those, Frankie Lyman. They just play a, a handful of songs, yes? Yeah, you got it, yeah. They play maybe two or three songs. And then next, oh my God, it was great. It was just such a thrill. I knew that. That's where I wanted to be, in the audience, on the stage, backstage. I didn't care. I just wanted to be around the music. Would Would you say at that time were all kids into it, or was it no? So what they again? Weren't. Like more like no. what? What was the world? <laughs> what was the world like then? Like um, were, were so would you would you say you were unusual for being in that group of people? I wasn't in a group of people. <laughs> Uh, which was pretty standard for me because, like I said, I lived in two different places. I lived in Maine and Massachusetts. So um, I didn't really have tight social groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had trouble at home. There were pedophiles in the neighborhood and in the house. So I was kind of a loner kid. And so the music that I was hearing, I was with I was with Fats Domino more than I was with the other kids. And in high school, now I'm maybe 15, 16, yeah, and I'm hearing these doo-wop and Rockabilly, um, you know, um, Buddy Holly, Elvis Presley. But it I'm, wasn't, but but just so we understand, yeah. it wasn't all the kids listening to no, this music. No, it wasn't. And it was like of, subculture music. It was subculture music, but it was, it was, um, it was described, it, the grownups would have think, would have thought, oh, you know, that's just cheap, you know, that's, um, uh, they, they either would have associated with black people in very ugly terms or poor people, not us anyway. You know, it, it was it was something that was a little um, risque. It's just so interesting because looking, you know, looking back, we think of both the music of the 50s and the 60s as so ubiquitous and so no, it mainstream. Wasn't. No, it was not. Mm-mm. So it was the underground music of the day. And, um, Good girls didn't listen to that kind of music. Interesting. Yeah, bad boys did. Um, so I went through different social thing. I, I think I went through social demotion <laughs> because of the music that I liked, but I didn't care. Yeah. Because that's what I wanted to do. Anyway, was go home and listen to my records and, yeah, and you know, you 45. You felt it in your heart. It was, it was not a, um, it, it made sense to you. It didn't have to make sense to everyone else. Do you think the other people didn't feel it? Um, well, thinking of my own situation, you know, the handful of kids I hung out with, I think they look. I think they thought it was sinful. Wow. They wouldn't have used that word, and they weren't really churchy, but they were definitely, you know. It was just like looked at beneath them. They would think it was yeah. beneath them. They or would they, think that it was. Would they, they be ashamed to listen to it, do you think? I think they hadn't discovered it. Tell me your first experience of folk music. Oh, gosh, let's see. I guess I was in college. I went to the University of Massachusetts, and I got a degree in teaching and a degree in Oriental philosophy. By the way, you started out in philosophy, I heard. Yeah. See, I've always considered myself very fortunate in that I came along into show business kind of by accident. I didn't really, you know, I I just, it's surprising that I was there at all. But I was called a folk singer because that's what they were trying to sell. So I came to Greenwich Village straight from college, 
But here I was in New York City for the first time, and I was a songwriter. But you weren't supposed to be one yet, and the folk police could get after you. And and if and and was folk, it was it acknowledged at that time that folk music was really an old form being brought back? So it was everyone knew that this is old music. I think so. We think of the '60s as when folk music started. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So it's it's interesting that it actually even then it was old music. Yeah. It was just a new wave of this old interest. music. It was interest in, in these old forms of music. And like I said, I felt as though I was very fortunate to come along when I did. In the first place, the window to show business was just left open by accident, I think. You know, we were coming out of the Eisenhower generation. Mm -hmm. And it was like Frank Sinatra and, you know, that kind of um, like tin pan alley. Loungy, big bands were mm -hmm. still around. Mm -hmm. But I was very lucky because... I didn't know anything about folk music. I was I was just getting over my degree in Oriental philosophy. <laughs> and I stepped on stage and I sang these songs. Now, I was lucky enough to be around real folk singers like Pete Seeger, Ewan McCall, Joan Byers, who sang songs that were four or 500 years old. Mm -hmm. They were real folk songs. Mm -hmm. And see, that really thrills me. As a person who doesn't read music, and I don't come from any kind of formal music background, including the Paul Simon kind of music background where you grow up in New York, your uncle's in the business, your other uncle's a lawyer and somebody else. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't come from that. And marginalized people, I think, would, I think it would be very surprising to most of you guys who are really solid in the record business and have not really experienced what it's like to be really marginalized and not, not, know anybody, not have a Rolodex, not yeah. have a, not have an address book, not know how it's done, why, how, who does it. Yeah. I mean, we don't even know where the door is. There's no way for Native American people to get into show business. There just isn't. Mm -hmm. And it's very rare anyway, I think, for um, anybody in show business to hold the door open for anyone else. It's just like, <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> how do you like me now, you know? But I didn't feel like that. I mean, I, I carried Joni Mitchell's tape around in my purse for a long time, long time, months and months. And I played it for all kinds of people in the music business. How did you first run into Joni? Um, well, she was a fan of mine. And I, I don't know where it was. It could have been in Saskatchewan or Minneapolis or somewhere. We were both on the road. And I heard about her and I heard her music. And I just thought she was just great. I thought, oh, she's great. She's beautiful. She's smart. She's got, she wants to, she wants to do this. Nobody wanted to hear it. So finally, I, I, um, I played her stuff for Elliot Roberts and told him to go down to the, um, where was it? I don't know, the Black Cat Cafe or something. One of those little clubs in the village. And they made a great career together. But it was very, very hard. People who really are connoisseurs of folk music would realize that folk music comes from everywhere. Yeah. It's just music made by folks. It's not just music made by the chosen few who are making the music business some money. We're going to invest in this. We're going to keep the public thinking that it's very folky, but really we're pumping dollars out of it. I mean, so many people made money on Woody Guthrie and, well, even Bob Marley later, right? Yeah. I mean, you and I are in the music business. We know where it's at. Yeah. <laughs> There's always been people who are in the business to make money, and there have always been people in the business to make great art. It just, mm -hmm. there's both paths. Yes, there are. And I think most most non-musicians, just most listeners, wouldn't realize that 
And I think that most new artists don't know that. And I think the record business has been terribly complicit in keeping, try to keep them ignorant. Yeah, and it's a business of sharks. Yes, it is. I mean, I was so green. I had never met a lawyer. I had never had a conversation with a businessman ever. I remember when I first went to New York, I was running around in my little high heels and mini dresses and things. And I remember I went into the musicians union for the first time, which is kind of like walking into the lobby of the Sopranos. <laughs> I mean, I grew I grew up around Italian American, you know, semi mafia people, you know, in in Maine and Massachusetts. I did that, and uh, I I look upon it very kindly like people in The Sopranos would, because I was seeing the family side of that. But the business side of that, wherever it's coming from, whether it's people whose roots are in um, this part of Europe or some other part of Europe, show business was developed in Europe through vaudeville by, uh, by people who were not only concerned with the show. They were also concerned with sustaining the business. I mean, that's not necessarily greed and I'm going to rip off artists. But, of course, the part that we object to is exactly about that. And there have been artists ripped off forever and ever. So I had never met a lawyer or a businessman. I remember when I first went into Vanguard Records and they asked me who my lawyer was. And I said, I didn't want, I didn't have one. And they said, that's okay, you can use ours. So I signed a seven-year deal. How did you know to go to Vanguard? How did it, how did it happen? No, I was just stupid. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just, no. Blue Note also wanted to sign me. <laughs> so Vanguard was very was, big was at the Joan time. Was Joan Baez already on Vanguard? Yes, she was, yeah. Joan Baez was already on Vanguard and having a fantastic career. Yeah. You know, so she was she was um, already signed. Her first album, I guess, was out just about the time that I showed up. And... Um, they wanted to sign me, and I said, yeah. I get, depending upon how you look at it, I kind of either fell into or lucked into having a career. My first album, all of a sudden, I was Billboard's Best New Artist. What? Just singing these songs that I'd been writing all, in, all this time, and they were about everything. And I didn't think it was going to do anything because people were pretty suspect of songwriters Anyway, and my first album is called It's My Way. I think they just put it into outer space or something, or it's into the Library of Congress. I don't know. It just right. got some big honor. I thought it was awful, but everybody else <laughs> loved it. No, I thought it was awful. Um, that, oh, that it was included, or you thought it was awful that the album's... Oh, no. I thought the album itself was awful. Oh, no. The songs are wonderful, but I just think they, they, they took the wrong takes. Oh, and, of course, an artist had no say in those days like when did you get into the music business just to put me in the date so on um 19 mid 80s okay okay mid All 80s right. okay I get it was it. the the early days of hip-hop music that's where i started uh, so nice so nice yeah so it it was uh it was it was um a scene where at first it was very naive and it was like yes students are in the streets, we have discovered our brains. We're not going to your freaking war. Um, and there was a lot of protest uh, bubbling under. I had written Universal Soldier, although everybody, you know, everybody thought Donovan wrote it. And I still have people come up to me today and argue that Donovan wrote Universal Soldier and Codine. And see, Donovan was a person of conscience who wrote all of his own songs except for two songs. 
And those two songs were Universal Soldier and Codine. So he got credit for writing those as well. And I don't think he ever took credit for it, but his management never pointed out that he hadn't written them. Who, who, how, how and why did you write Codine? Uh, Codine, um, you know, for years until very recently, people wouldn't understand this, but now people would. I was addicted to Codine uh, by a doctor in Florida. I had been playing at Freddie Neal's place in Coconut Grove, you know, that little club that he used to have. I don't know. I went to a doctor who said that I had bronchitis. I'd been coughing and things. I think I was probably just exhausted from being on the road all the time. I practically lived in a bus. And he addicted me to codeine. And he apparently had addicted many young ladies to codeine and turned them out. And so people who are addicted through their doctors to an opiate, and codeine seeds an opiate, I mean, codeine, it sounds, ooh, silly, trick-or-treat, kid stuff. Uh Uh-uh. Codeine is as much of an opiate as heroin is. It's an opiate. And just like all the doctor drugs, the synthetic drugs now, like Percocet and, you know, all of the uh, uh, Oxycontin, all of them, they're, yes, they're all synthetic opiates. Mm -hmm. If you, it's my belief, now you might disagree, but it's my belief that if a person gets into drugs through social reasons, Mm -hmm. they're very likely to get addicted in in kind of a, a different, almost more difficult way. You know, they're in it and it's fun and it's wonderful and, it, you know, they're having fun with their friends. But if if a doctor addicts you and all of a sudden you have to leave town, as what happened to me, I, I had to leave Florida and um, we were driving through Georgia and I was just feeling horrible, no idea what was wrong with me and went to a pharmacist to refill a Florida prescription. <laughs> I didn't know you couldn't do that. And the guy said, I can't fill it. It's from a different state. But how long have you been taking it? And he, the pharmacist pointed out to me that I was addicted to an opiate. I had no idea. Wow. I had just been going to the doctor for my shots and for my pills. Yeah. So I went through withdrawal cold turkey. But no, it wasn't like I ever had any fun on it. <laughs> See? Yeah. So it's kind of a kind no, it's of It's really bummer. interesting. I would, have, oh, I would have guessed, had I not known the story, mm-hmm. that there was a long blues tradition of songs about drugs. Cocaine uh, blues, cocaine yeah, blues, going yeah, like up the, state street. Like those kind of things, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I would think, oh, you're doing one of those kind of songs. No. I would have never guessed it was a personal issue. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. Yeah, because, you know, I didn't really have that personal issue. How old issue. were you at the time? Maybe 22. And see, I I don't drink. I still don't drink. I just zero alcohol all my life just because I just never did. Um, And I I was a girl by myself, and I looked a certain way, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I I looked a certain way. I didn't run around with some granny dress. (laughs) I was either smart enough or stupid enough (laughs) to get my first show business dress from the Fredericks catalog. (laughs) (laughs) And the Fredericks catalog, you wouldn't know what that is now. But it used to be this thing, you'd see it advertised in the back of movie magazines (laughs) when I was 20. Right, and it was sexy clothes for women, and it was drawn. They weren't photos; they were drawn, so they were really, they were really pretty. Mm-hmm. And so I ordered this dress, and I overdubbed on it. I made it have a ragged hem, and I mean, like a V hem. Mm-hmm. And um, I showed up in my high heels, and th- you know, there were, there were people around, like Judy Collins and others, in not very flamboyant clothes. So I was also making that mistake. So here I showed up. I wasn't singing folk songs. I didn't know how to read music. Um, I didn't, had never met a lawyer. I mean, I was really green and I was wearing the wrong thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) 
And, uh, you know, looking back on it, all I can say is, you know, be yourself and be who you are. Because I had an awful lot of fun, even though I was doing everything wrong. Yeah. I didn't soar to the top. I didn't become, you know, the equivalent of Madonna and Michael Jackson. But there were reasons why. And it had nothing to do with lack of talent. But those of us like you and me who are in show business, we know all the things that it takes to make an artist. And it's not all good. And it's very tricky for anyone to negotiate as long as it lasts in that kind of center. I had no idea that there was anybody standing in opposition to me or trying to trip me up. I, I, I just thought I was lucky to be there and to get to make one record, yeah. you know. And you were. I mean, the other side of it is you did get to do it. I did get to do it. And I got to do it. For my reasons, not so much for showbiz reasons. Yeah. And I it took I didn't find out for 20 years about I didn't know that there was any such thing as blacklisting. None of us did. Yeah. I, I had no idea I'd been taken out. Yeah. I, I had to find out by accident. We'll be back with Rick and Buffy St. Marie after a quick break. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. 
Audible invites you to enter the boar's nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the boar's nest. We're back with Buffy St. Marie, who's explaining why her music was blacklisted by the U.S. government in the 60s. Do you think the song Universal Soldier is the reason? That's what most people say. That's what Wikipedia will say. They'll say Buffy St. Marie was blacklisted by two American presidents because they objected to her outspoken stance expressed in Universal Soldier. But I don't think it was that. It wasn't that. That's what's so fascinating about that song is there are lots of anti-war songs. There are none from that perspective. That's a that's a wild perspective. Have you heard the war racket? Mm Mm-mm. You got to hear the war racket. Okay. I mean, you probably, most Americans, even people in the business like yourself, lost track of me probably in 1970 or something. Mm-hmm. And if they already had children, they may have seen me on Sesame Street for five and a half years. They may have. But most people think that I kind of came and went. And that's what I thought. I thought singers come and singers go. But I still had a big career in other places. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, oh, you know, the U.S., Something else came along. I, I so, had, so you think the, the popularity in Canada versus U.S. had to do with blacklisting specifically? Oh, absolutely. So interesting. Absolutely. I was in Canada. I was in Toronto one day. Now, this is in the 80s. Yeah. I was in Toronto. I showed up for an interview in a radio station, and the guy said, I have, I'm going to start this interview with Barbara St. Marie by apologizing to you for having gone along with what I was praised to have gone along with on White House stationery. The guy had a letter from the Johnson White House uh, commending him for having suppressed my music, which deserved to be suppressed. And the only person I knew I could talk it over with, besides my lawyer, which I I mentioned it to him one day, and he suggested I get my FBI files. And I said, oh, come on. You know, I've never broken the law. I've never, I'm not even the one who parades down the street with a sign, you know, I'm not that kind of protester. I'm a writer, right? And the only other person I could tell besides my lawyer was my friend Taj Mahal. And Taj and I were classmates together at the University of Massachusetts. And then we both moved to Hawaii, and I had already been here for a long time. And our sons wound up best friends, and our sons wound up being college roommates at Berklee College of Music. Incredible. I know. So anyway, we were real good friends. And Taj pointed out to me that Eartha Kitt, too, had been blacklisted. And he knew some other people who he thought had. So... I, my lawyer said, well, let's get your FBI files. I said, oh, there aren't any. That, well, there were like, I forget, like 31 pages, I think. Wow. It's all redacted. I mean, you know, they were following me around and making sure that I wasn't something that I. Rabble rousing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah, no, but I, I wasn't much of a rabble rouser. I was a writer. That's who I, I'm a writer and a philosopher. I'm not a card-carrying fist pumper. You know, I'm just not. I support people. Do you remember the original that. inspiration for Universal Soldier? Again, just because the perspective. It's a, tell me the story. I absolutely remember it. Let me let me just set it for you. Okay, I'm in Greenwich Village. There's students all over the streets, right? Um, it's 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 about music, and it's about the fact that we kind of don't trust Mr. Man anymore. <laughs> You know, it's like we're coming out of the Eisenhower generation. It's Kennedy time. Anyway, I was in an airport. I was in San Francisco airport coming from Mexico on the way to Toronto. I had a concert at the Purple Onion. And in the middle of the night, some 
medics came in. They were wheeling wounded soldiers in gurneys and wheelchairs and things. And I got to talking to one of the medics and, you know, I asked, I asked him, you know, he assured me that there was a war going on in Vietnam and it was horrible. And I just got to thinking, well, who is it who's responsible for war? Is it these guys? Is it these poor guys lying here? You know, some, some private, you know, he signed up to make the world a better place or family tradition or see the world. And now he's lying here half dead, right? Well, there's a certain amount of responsibility right then, but you know, the night's going on, the flight's going to leave in the morning, I got nothing to do, I got a long flight ahead of me, and I'm just thinking about this. So, the song really is about individual responsibility for the world we're living in. You know, that's, that's the way I put it. And it's about alternative conflict resolution. They're all part of the same thing. Okay, so nobody knew I wrote it. Everybody thought Donovan wrote it. So that wasn't the problem. However, a little bit later, I had written this other song. Was it a big hit for Donovan? It was a hit for Donovan, yeah. yeah. yeah I and couldn't tell you how many they sold or where it went on the charts. all over the world? I think so, yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it was, yeah. But see, I didn't, I, uh, I had, uh, I told you, I had never met a businessman. And I had been in town, I had been in Greenwich Village, I don't know, not very long. And I was singing Universal Soldier. I had been singing it in Europe as well. That's where Donovan heard it. But I was, sing- I was singing it at the Gaslight Cafe. Did you ever see that place? Mm-mm. Oh, downstairs plays real famous place for newbies to sing past the hat club and the high women came in and they heard it and the high women were like a preppy group like the kingston trio right kind of imagine you know four preppy guys um singing a lot of folk songs um and they heard universal soldier and they were coming off this huge hit michael roll the voter shore hallelujah right oh it was like number one they were coming off this hit and they wanted to record universal soldier and they said who's the publisher and i said what's that and the guy, a guy at another table, who was a friend of my manager at the time, said, oh, I can help you with that, right? And he, he made up a contract at the table. I signed it. He gave me a dollar, and he owned the rights to Universal Soldier. And Donovan got a hit, and he got credit for having written it. So <laughs> you'll find out as you get to know me better. I like to turn things positive. The positive about this story is that 10 years later, I was able to buy back the rights, at least part of the rights to Universal Soldier for $25,000, which is a lot of money at that time. So I was doing that well to rescue my own song. And at the same time, see, I had written this song called Until It's Time for You to Go. You're not a dream. You're not an angel. You're a man, right? (laughs) Like played at a million weddings. Yeah. Um, And everybody was was recording it. I had written it in the 60s. You wrote it in the 60s. Did you ever record well, it in the 60s? 63 or 64, sure. No. Really? No, maybe 64, 65. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is it I on did. one of your early? Yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Because yeah, I, I think it's on my the... second album, I think. Incredible. Yeah. Amazing. Mm-hmm. But okay, so I'd written this song. Oh, God. Bobby Darren recorded it. Now he recorded it in Is he a the way. First, the first person to cover it? Bobby Darren. Bobby Darren was the first person to cover it. Yeah, can I use this guitar here? Sure. Do we have time for me? Yeah. Oh, please. Okay, so the way the way I had written it. <laughs> you're a man. I'm not a queen. I'm a woman. Take my. I'm not a queen. I'm a woman. Take my hand. We'll make a space in the lives that we planned. And he will stay until it's time 
for you to go. See, see how it goes. And he will stay until it's time for you to go. Well, it holds what's called a suspension, mm-hmm. and most people don't know what that is. But it's it's a da 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 da. Da, 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 da. Hear this note in here again? Well, Bobby Darren and his musical director, they didn't catch that. And they recorded it really vanilla. Then. And here it's time for the dawn, dawn, ba, ba, ba. So it sounds like every other song, right? And it bothered me. Oh, it just pissed me off for years. And then many other people who recorded it, like Sonny and Cher recorded it, uh, Roberta Flack recorded it, oh, Chet Atkins recorded it. How was, how was the Roberta version? Oh, it's beautiful, really and beautiful. And is, is it piano? Yeah, she does it on piano, and she gets the chords right. Wow. I mean, the real musicians got the chords right, but whoever followed uh, Bobby Darren's Vegas version did not. Mm. And if Elvis Presley recorded it, Barbara Streisand recorded it, Boston Pops Orchestra, everybody recorded it right. What's your favorite version? Oh, gosh. Uh, I love Ch- what Chet Atkins did. Uh, Glenn Campbell did a beautiful version. Yeah. And it's been done in other languages, too. But anyway, what I was trying to say is that um, this song uh, kind of brought me to television. And they wouldn't let me on television with Universal's older, right? So I think, but once I got on television, I opened my mouth. And I was talking about, you know, uh, Native American rights, um, uh, alternative conflict resolution. I mean, that's not who they hired. They wanted a, a chick in a short skirt to come on and sing the song and talk about how much fun it was to, you know, celebrity chat. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, Harry Belafonte invited me onto The Tonight Show, and right. I sang Now That the Buffalo's Gone, which is about the breaking of the oldest treaty in congressional archives, which had been done in the, in the administration of George Washington, right? Benjamin Franklin and those people, right? They unilaterally broke the oldest treaty in congressional archives. And now that the Buffalo's gone, tells that story. And it was on my first album along with Universal Soldiers. So I did that song with Harry Belafonte when he filled in for Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show. And the next time that I was invited to come on The Tonight Show to actually be with Johnny... I was told in no uncertain terms that, you know, it was to sing. Just sing celebrity, song. Right. Just, well, no, no. And it's not going to be Universal Soldier. And it's not yeah, going to be yeah. any kind of yeah. song of, uh, you know, uh, asking for change or pointing things out. It wasn't going to be a protest song. Yeah. So I turned it down. The screener, I was talking to the screener, you know, one of the producers calls you up and, and, talks it over with you. Yeah, we'd love to have you back on, but, you know, times have changed, so you don't want to hear it. We don't want to hear any of that protest stuff. Just sing until it's time for you to go. So I turned it down. So when it comes to your <laughs> roundabout way to your question about was I blacklisted because of Universal Soldier? No, I was blacklisted because I'm an outspoken person. I was a woman on television pointing out the fact that they were stealing Indian land the particular parts of Indian land that contained uranium. <laughs> you, don't want it. you don't say that, right? Wow. So anyway, J. Edgar Hoover, <laughs> he was not a fan of mine. Uh, both, apparently, uh, both the Johnson and Nixon governments. I didn't find out about the Nixon blacklisting until, gee, a few years ago on the internet, a guy from the CIA, not the FBI, the CIA, also was talking about COINTELPRO, you know, and me and other, a few other artists being followed. And 
really, um, it was an attempt to shut us up. Now, at a certain point, all of a sudden, I couldn't get any airplay. It didn't matter what we recorded. I was I was recording in Nashville. We're leaving a whole lot out. I, I was spending time with Chet Atkins. Chet Atkins fixed me up with Norbert Putnam's Area Code 615 band. It was just solid, wonderful band. Oh, my God. And um, we were making really good records. I mean, I want to give you a list because I think probably yeah. I've done some, I think you probably lost track of me significantly enough so that you've probably missed 80% of what I've done that's good. And wow. you've probably heard just a few little things, but I'll fill you in after this. Great. And <laughs> uh, we'll put together uh, a playlist based on sure. what you give me and we'll attach it to this to this interview. Oh, that'd be good. So everyone could hear it. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to people because uh, you know, you know how it is. Uh, yeah. You've you've known a lot of artists with long careers. Yes. And things change and you come and go and you yes. know for me, it's always been like people think that you're so creative when you're out there on the road, right? There's <laughs> no time to be creative. You barely have a chance to get a nap. You know, you're exhausted all the time. And then you take you take some time off and they think that you've not creative anymore, which is when, at least in my case, that's when I'm most creative. Yeah. Yeah. There were also some show business mistakes, I think, that I made, ticking certain people off and just not just not being much of a, I'm not much of a social networker at all. I didn't go to the right parties. But uh, what I've had, I think, has been a different kind of life than the lives of my peers in show business. I, I never did drink, so... And I was afraid of men because, like I said, in my childhood, it was Peter. It was just it was uh, there were a lot of pedophiles around. So I was kind of af- I was afraid of men, and I didn't go to bars. And that's where all the deals are made. After the show, you go out with the business people, and you make nice, and everybody has a few drinks, and you sit around, and there's wine, and there's blah blah blah, and who knows what else. Well, I wasn't there. <laughs> I don't even know what there was, what else, because I wasn't there. And I wasn't there for good reasons. I was by myself. I wasn't a guy. And I wasn't a girl with with an entourage around her. I didn't have strong management. I was just a little piece of something. And I I knew how you get treated when you show up in the wrong place at the wrong hour. So I think I did really well in negotiating show business on my own terms to the end where I feel very satisfied as a writer and an artist and the places that I've been and the people that I've met and the things that I've done. I took 16 years off in the middle of my career to raise my son. And the first five of those, we were on Sesame Street. Then when it was time for him to go to school, I said, well, you know, Reagan had cut the budget to the arts for Sesame Street. And we had already been on five and a half years. And when he did that, it would have meant that we would have had to move to New York (laughs) or um, just not be a part of it anymore. So I asked my son, who was, I guess, around five at the time, I said, do you want to still live in Hawaii or do you want to live in New York? And he said, Hawaii. And that's what I was hoping he would say, too. Good choice. Yeah. So I, I took time off. We'll be back with Rick and Buffy St. Marie after a quick break. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. 
Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers... Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with Buffy St. Marie. Tell me where a song comes from for you. I, uh, I wish I knew. I just don't know. Um, so it usually start with an idea mm, or might it start with music? It might. St- I might be fooling around with my guitar or my piano or, you know, any, I, any kind of a drum, anything. I don't know. It just pops into your head. I don't know. Just, I think I write the same way that I did when I was three, which is, might be bad news for some people, but it's kind of good news for me. And it's all I got. Yeah. Well, I think it's only good news because it's, you were playing. So. That's it. So if you're keeping the, the childlike play. That's it. That's only good. Thank you. That's exactly it. For me, the music is play. Yeah, it's not work. And I know that there's a lot of work. Yeah, and like I said, there's show and you got to show yeah, up and yeah. there's business. But that that initial thing, the thing that keeps us happening, um, you know, wanting to be musicians every day is the fact that it's fun. 
What's the story of Little Wheel Spin and Spin? I like that song a lot. Well, thank you. It's just talking about our kind of like the human condition all the time, whether you're talking about the schoolyard or the church or blah, 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 business or politics. There's this idea of the think local, think, act locally, think globally. It's like a gearing. The way that you're making things happen in your family life at home, in your personal life inside your heart and mind where you know things are going on, it really, really does affect the neighborhood, uh, your island or your community, your nation, the world. It really does. So it says things like Merry Christmas, Jingle Bells, Christ is Born, and the Devil's in Hell. Hearts, they shrink, but pockets swell. Everybody know, nobody tell, right? It's like Christmas time, yeah. It says, um... Blame the angels, blame the fates, blame the Jews or your sister Kate. Teach your children how to hate. And the big wheels turn around and around. Oh, the sins of Caesar's men, cry the pious citizens who petty thieves, the five and tens. And the big wheels turn around and around. Turn your back on weeds you've hoed, silly sinful seeds you've sowed. Add your straw to the camel's load, honey, pray like hell when your world explode. Little wheels spin and spin, big wheels turn around. And the end says, swing your girl, fiddler say, later on the piper pay, dosey dose, swing and sway, dead will dance on judgment day, little wheels spin and spin, the big wheels turn around and around. So I think some of my songs, <laughs> they're definitely written by a philosopher. <laughs> I have two kinds of protest songs and then other songs of... Uh, Empowerment, mm -hmm. You Got to Run is one of them. Um, Carry It On is another. It's the opposite of a protest song. A protest song will lay out what the problem is. And this other kind of song for which we don't have a name for the genre is like the solution. Beautiful. Yeah, it works. But nobody's doing it right now. And, you know, I do a lot of interviews. And a lot of interviewers are asking me, well, where are the great protest songs right now? And all I can say is hip-hop, you know, um, yeah. rap, um, you know, it's kind of hard to find, but I think the sentiment, the drive, the creativity is still there among young people and the rest of us. But I don't know what the, is happening with, you know, hello, Paul Simon and Sting and, you know, some of the other people who've made a freaking fortune, a fortune. How can they see these things going down and not respond with their, just the heart of their talent and brains, you know, their, I don't know where their songs are. Do you know? I don't know. Are you hearing people write that kind of songs anymore? I hear I hear young artists doing protest songs. I've um, they they exist, they exist. They're not. They're clearly not in the mainstream, and they're not. Um, they don't seem to have the same impact that they once did, and I don't know why that is. In the '60s, they were making money off protest music, right? Yeah. I mean, I wasn't getting much money out of Universal Soldier, but Donovan's people were. Yeah. And so was the guy who had given me one dollar. Who, who stole who stole the rights well, from Well, he you. didn't steal them. No, yes. he didn't. I was just green. I was just yeah, yeah, yeah. dumb. No, I don't I'm not mad at him for that. Yeah. Uh that was just me. Yeah. How how did you end up meeting um Jack Nietzsche? <laughs> Jack Nietzsche. Jack You were married, yes. Okay. Not I then. know very little. Not then. Okay, I'll tell you. Okay. So, 
I told you I was a philosophy major, which you can dig because you were a philosophy major yes. too. Okay, so one of the people I came across, of course, was Friedrich Nietzsche. And Friedrich Nietzsche, unfortunately, was totally uh, uh, misportrayed by the Nazis who just m- misconstrued a lot. Anyway, he was a great philosopher, and I really thought he was terrific. Um, so I'm already recording for Vanguard. I don't know how many albums I've made for them. But Jack Nietzsche saw Cashbox magazine. <laughs> The picture of it. He said he fell in love with me with my picture in Cashbox magazine and got in touch with, then he heard my records, right? Uh, got in touch with Maynard Solomon and just was begging to make a record with me. And I guess it was, oh, you know, I was already in Nashville uh, working with Chet Atkins, which was a dream come true. Oh, God, he was wonderful. Anyway, Jack, that's how Jack discovered me. And Jack and wanted Jack, to make was an Jack album. Jack already with working me. with Neil? He had already been working yeah. with Neil. He had already been working with Neil Young, yes. Mm-hmm. And so Jack wanted desperately to make a record with me, and I didn't even know who he was, except that he was he was the uh, he was the uh, grandson of Friedrich Nietzsche's brother. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, it's that Nietzsche. Those thought, are the Nietzsches we're talking about. So I when didn't even know talking, that that was really his name. Yes, that's really his. I always name. thought that was his stage name. No. <laughs> oh no, he come. He no, you know, people will tell you terrible stories. Jack himself would tell you terrible stories about himself. Mm. Jack died a few years ago, by the mm-hmm. way. So we we met, uh, we made this album called she Used to Want to Be a Ballerina. I think it's the worst record either one of us ever made, but <laughs> some people liked it. But it had some re- a few really nice things on it. So anyway, every now and then Jack would call me up and he'd need something. Uh, like he needed me. He was he was scoring a performance, Donald Camel's movie. It was Mick Jagger's first acting role, performance. It's real good, too. I think it's a great movie and great score. I mean, Jack, in case you're... In case our listeners don't understand, Jack Nietzsche was, is... Uh, he's, he's very, very well-known for movie composer and totally original, you know, and he doesn't use ghosts to write his his music he was really really a unique talent very wonderful talent god he wrote beautiful things that most people will never hear and i was scoring my own movies but i was also working with jack from time to time because jack was all in love see <laughs> and um i didn't see him for years and years and years and then he came back into my life because he said that he was scoring a movie and it was a real good movie with Richard Keir and Deborah Winger, and he couldn't come up with a main theme. <laughs> I don't know. I didn't understand that at all. Jack is one. He's just a brilliant composer, but he can't improvise. And I've never understood that. See, I'm a writer too, but I can't read. So there's all kinds of ways to approach music, and they're all good. Yeah, there's no right way. There's no right way, and it's a mystery every time. Mm-hmm. See. So Jack couldn't come up with a melody, and he came to visit me, brought the director along. I hadn't seen him in a long, long time. And by that time, I was um, done with Sesame Street. I was raising my son uh, by myself here in Hawaii. And Jack showed up, and I played him, da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, love lift us up where we belong, right? And uh, I played him the whole melody and the bridge and everything. And that became the main theme for An Officer and a Gentleman. And it became the main theme for the song Up Where We Belong, which was my melody, a little thing that Jack wrote, and then words by Will Jennings, genius, Will Jennings, yes. Oh, God, what a writer. 
Um, but Zach didn't tell the movie director that I had written it. He pretended he had written it. Yeah. So he, at some point he had to tell Taylor Hackford that he had not written it. And so this was not a big deal because movie companies would know how to handle that. But it was, it was very weird. I wrote a lot of things that went into Jack's scores, but he would always tell me, no, don't, don't tell anybody because, and I didn't care anyway. All it was, was, you know, little bit here, little bit there. And so eventually we got married. (laughs) That's a big jump though. (laughs) It's a terrible jump. Believe me. (laughs) So how did that happen? It it was a leap of stupidity. (laughs) How did that happen? How did that happen? (laughs) Oh God. I had lost track of Jack, so there was an awful lot that I didn't know. Yes. I was raising my son in Hawaii yes. and doing education and concerts in foreign countries, but the U.S. didn't love me anymore. Yeah. So I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know about Jack's police record. I didn't know about anything. And he came along, and he was so nice to my little boy and carrying him around in his shoulders, and wouldn't it be wonderful, and blah, blah, blah. And... I've been out shopping for the ring and is what he told me. Anyway, I kind of just, I just said, yes, I, I, I liked him. We had been friends. We were musical. You knew him a long time at this point. Well, yeah, I had known him for a long length of time, but there were you many years where there was no calendar at all. I didn't see him for years. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And I had known in the sixties when I knew him, he's kind of cuckoo. But he was on best behavior when he came back into my life. Mm-hmm. And we were married for just a short time when I realized I was in deep trouble. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, I say a, this in all candor. No, but did, he, did he have a drug problem? I, I don't know much at all. <laughs> oh, well. Um, you know, there's a filmmaker named Christian St. Clair, I believe his name is, who's making a movie about Jack. And he asked me to speak out because I don't talk about Jack. Mm -hmm. And I said, only if Jack's son, Jack Jr., is part of this, which he was. So I saw a little bit of about, I saw a little bit of what Keith Richards did because he and Keith were very good friends. And what Jack and Willie DeVille had done together, lots and lots of clips. And I did my piece too, but I don't think it's come out yet. And I really don't feel comfortable in oh, describing Jack in any way, except to tell you that he was super brilliant. I mean, genius, brilliant. You know, see, he was a very unique intelligence. He was brutal. He would tell you that everybody in Hollywood thinks he's an asshole and that they he was right. Um, he would do terrible, terrible things because of his... He had a he had a mental problem, exacerbated like you know an awful lot of people exacerbated by alcohol. So he was an alcoholic and drugs exacerbated. But his real problem was a mental problem. Uh, Friedrich Nietzsche died in a mental institution. So did his father, the father of Friedrich Nietzsche. And you know so it, it's something that runs in the family. And all I can tell you is, uh, in defense of Jack. Yeah who was no day at the beach and the first to admit it was that, you know, he would get a squirt of brain chemicals that was just horror and he'd lay it on whoever was there. And Mm -hmm. most of the time that was me. Mm -hmm. So I hung in there for about eight years and finally, finally I had to, I won't, I'll spare you the details, but they were 
pretty dramatic. Yeah. Um, you know, Andrea Warner's book, she wrote an autobiography. She wrote a biography of me. She just called it Buffy St. Marie, the autobiography. And uh, she, she goes into some of the details. Um, but musicians sometimes, I guess, I guess the reason why I'm willing to talk about it a little bit is to share with you, Jack's probably going to go down in history, unless you talk to Keith Richards, <laughs> as being a real jerk. And why would I put up with that for so long? Yeah. Neil, Neil Young also loved Jack. Yeah. Loved Leslie him. Morris, too, just loves Jack. Yeah. A few people just, a few, Jack has a few people, and I'm one of them, yeah. who, um, who even though he was crazy, and we know he was crazy, and we know he was an asshole and would agree with all of that. But some, He's the most honest person I ever met. Some, sometimes totally the, the brilliance comes with other things. It's like, I don't know. It's, I do. I think sometimes it does. But I don't necessarily think it has to, and I don't no, think it it's doesn't, an excuse it doesn't, for it either. It doesn't have to, yeah. and it's not an excuse, mm -hmm. but it's true that they come together sometimes. Yes, it's I, not yeah. it's like um the same that break from reality allows innovation. I think say. you're right. I think you're right. And and even less severe breaks re with reality. Like me wanting to live in Hawaii. You know, I live in the mountains over here. Not because I'm Barbie go wants to go to the beach. No, yeah. <laughs> it's not that. I live here because it is an aber it's an aberration for a person in show business to hide away uh, in a place nobody can find you. It's an aberration, but it's my aberration. Yeah. It sounds so, sounds really healthy to me. <laughs> it is sounds natural and, and healthy, and it has been, and it has been for me. So it's always a it's always a balance because you know people in the U.S. don't understand that I have a big career. They don't know because they think that oh that was the little Indian girl that would make you cry, you know, or and and I, <laughs> you know, do you to, think, to do address you that further, you know, people. People would just think the in, the little Indian girl is mistaken because I wrote a song called "My Country Tis of Thy People You're Dying," which is Indian 101 in six minutes, yeah. and it's heavy. Yeah, but I tried when I put this album together. Of it's a retrospective of all the strong songs, whether mm -hmm. they're strongly positive or protest. Mm -hmm. There's not one of them that's pap. You know, it's all pretty strong stuff. And when you look back on it, you know, how are you going to do that? It, my country, tis of thy people, you're dying. Universal soldier, now the buffalo's gone. I did them exactly the way that I did then. Originally. Only I'm a better guitar player and a better singer, and we have better recording now. My latest album is Power is uh, Medicine Songs. Uh, but the one before that, Power in the Blood, is is what I would advise first time listeners to hear. I think they'd I think they'd like that album. It's very diverse, has a lot of different kinds of music in it. Great. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks to Buffy St. Marie for sharing her story and inspiration with Rick. Be sure to check out the playlist Buffy created for us at brokenrecordpodcast.com. And also subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where we'll be putting up our old interviews and also new ones, sometimes with some extra content. Broken Record is produced with help from Jason Gambrell, Mia LaBelle, Leah Rose, and Martin Gonzalez for Pushkin Industries. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. 
Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored among some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. 